And for those of you who are new, tonight is the beginning, the very first sermon in a new series, and it's called Answers Questioning the Bible. And this is what has happened. For the last month and a half, two months, we've been asking you via social media and in person, what questions do you have about the Bible? What questions do you have that you want the Bible to answer? And so we got roughly 40 questions, but we only have about 12 weeks. And so what we were able to do is take themes of questions and smash them into sermons. Now, what the elders have decided to do was leave about three or four spots still open. Okay, we have more than enough questions to fill those four weeks. However, what we're thinking is as we go through the series, more questions will arise. So, if you have questions, or if as we're going through any of these sermons, you have more questions, please write them on a piece of paper, shoot a text to any of the elders, uh, send an email to the church, eternalcitychurch at gmail.com. That little box right there with the slot on the top, you can drop uh, a three by five card in there or a little note or however you want to get the question to us, we will enter it into the log. And if we don't hit it by sermon, we will be hitting it by a podcast later. And so today, to kick off the series, we're going to take one of the big questions that came. It came in at least four different ways, and it's forgiveness. Hey, forgiveness is a big deal in the Scriptures. In fact, it's central to the Christian faith on multiple levels, on multiple levels. And so here, here were the questions roughly, okay? We might have shaped them a bit differently, but here they were. Is there a biblical difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? How can you or do you walk in forgiveness toward a professing believer who hasn't asked for forgiveness or demonstrated repentance? How can you forgive someone who has died? And if when I forgive, do I have to forget? Men are those good questions. And so here's how we're going to answer those four questions. We're going to open up the Bible, and the New Testament specifically. It has a lot to say about forgiveness. And so you can't say everything that must be said in one sermon. So we're going to say just enough to answer these questions. But let me encourage you, there are volumes written on forgiveness. One just came out recently uh, by the late Timothy Keller. He just died like last month. It's called Forgiveness. It's a great book, and for you audio guys, it's on audio. Uh, So you pick up that book, you will be thoroughly pleased that you did. Timothy Keller on Forgiveness. Um, The first text we're going to go through, and so again, here's the plan. We're going to unpack Scripture, and we're going to answer them by the way, those questions by the way, as we go through various texts. But then at the end, I'm going to give very specific answers to those questions, okay? So now you have a roadmap, so let's start down the journey. Matthew 6, 12 to 15 has some like jarring things in it. This is in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, you know that prayer. So we're breaking into and forgive us our debts, okay? So think Lord's Prayer, Sermon on the Mount, forgive us our debts. This is Jesus teaching his disciples and by extension us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice the have forgiven. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now Jesus ends the Lord's prayer here with this. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But verse 15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly or will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, that's a frightening verse. Okay? And, and I'm tempted to qualify it already, but I won't. I'm just going to let it land on you with all of the theological questions that then just go off in your mind. I'm going to let it sit. And let's let Jesus say it, and let's let it sit there. What Jesus is saying here, if I don't qualify it, is if you have unforgiveness towards anyone, God's not going to forgive you your sins. That's what he's saying. It's like, dang. Right? It's like, Jesus, why you gotta, you got to do me like that? You know? But, but this is the sharp words of the Lord Christ to us. You must forgive. Okay, so why did I bring this up as the very first text? Forgiveness is not an option for Christians, fellas and ladies. It's not optional. It's not like, oh, I need to grow in this area, and maybe someday I'll get there. No, this is an essential. You need to work on this immediately, and you'll see that as we unpack the message. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you just snap to it and get, get on it, uh, but it is essential. That's my point. It's essential. Now, a few more texts before we start unpacking the big ones. If we backed up a little bit before the, the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're offering a gift at the altar, now remember, this is first, simple, first century temple Judaism and the Jewish people that he's talking to. There was the altar at the temple, and you would offer various animals for various kinds of sacrifices. And he says, if you're at the temple and you're offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember, now look at this, that your brother has something against you, not you have something against someone else, but someone has something against you. What is, where does that put you? You're the person that's in the wrong. What does Jesus say to do? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Like, get on it. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Hmm. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying forgiveness is more important than your offerings and sacrifices. Reconciliation, in my view, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Forgiveness, in my view, Jesus says, is more important than your multitude and many sacrifices for me. And so you can sacrifice all kinds of animals, and for us, we do a living sacrifice. But if you're not forgiving, that's what I'm concerned about. That's what he's saying. And then Ephesians 4.32, you remember Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, heavy doctrine, heavy theology, good gospel. And then 4, 5, and 6 is heavy application. Because of the gospel, do this. Because you're elected in Christ, do this. And look at Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now look at the qualification as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, so Paul here is grounding forgiveness in the forgiveness of God. The gospel is good news 
that Jesus, the Lord of glory, the creator in John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, became his own creation, lived perfectly uh, according to God's standard of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he did that completely, continuously, without fail. And then he went to the cross, a Roman cross, and died a substitutionary death for all those who would ever trust in him. He was then buried, and then he bodily rose from the dead, showed himself to more than 500 witnesses at one time, and then after 40 days, he rose. He ascended into heaven. Okay? And now, those who plead with God for mercy and depend on Jesus for forgiveness because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we are forgiven. We're in Christ. We're found in him. Like um, if you've ever gone boating or if you've ever been in a canoe or a kayak, you're in the water. Well, Christians are in Christ. Locationally, uh, Ephesians 6 says we've been baptized into the death of Christ. We're plunged into that sacrifice, and now what defines us is Jesus. It's a little abstract, but think about it. Baptized into Christ. His perfection is our perfection. His death was for us. His resurrection is also ours. We will be resurrected with a resurrection like his. And so Paul's saying, like, look, as you've been forgiven, that's the grounds for you needing to forgive everyone else. Now, let's unpack that. Luke 17.3 starts, I think, one of the most fantastic sections on forgiveness in the New Testament. But it's one that I don't think anybody goes to and thinks about. You might know little portions of it out of context, I guarantee that, but you've never thought of the whole section in the context of forgiveness. And so here it is. Jesus starts by saying this, Pay attention to yourselves, and look at that exclamation point. Pay attention to yourselves. Why, Jesus? If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. All right, stop. Notice how he starts in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves when what happens? When someone sins against you. That should be a a warning light, A, a blinking red light should go off. Okay. That means when someone sins against me, I need to not just look at them, but I also need to look at me. Why? Well, let's read. If your brother sins against you, what should you do? You rebuke him. It's like, yes, I love this already. Like, someone sins against me and I get to to rebuke him? Yes, but wait, that's not all. If he repents, that means turns, acknowledges the wrong and turns from it, then you forgive. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must, you must forgive. Now, we know about seven in the Bible, don't we? It is a a symbolic number. Judaism was all about the numbers and, and the numerics. And so seven is not talking specifically about seven times, is it? In fact, here's a parallel passage in Matthew 18, 21. Peter came up and said to him, him is Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, seven? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations have it 70 times seven, 490. Now Jesus isn't obviously saying this, hey, that eighth time, You have my permission to draw blood from their mouth. If 
you're good at suplexing like WWF, just get them, you know? Try to break their neck if you can. He's not saying that. He's not saying also, hey, 490, but on 491, you have my permission. He's not saying that. No. He, seven is this number of completion in the Bible. It's wholeness. It's the number of, and so what he's saying is, you must completely forgive somebody, no matter how great the wrong is, and no matter how many times they wrong you, but notice the condition, if he repents, if he repents. Tuck that in your back pocket, okay? If he repents. Now, this is astonishing. It's astonishing to the apostles as much as it's astonishing to us. How do you know? Verse five, the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. Like, I don't, I don't believe this. I can't believe this. Give me some more faith. Right? Do you have some kind of energy drink with some faith in there and I can just drink that thing like a Red Bull that'll, that'll give me some faith energy? And look at Jesus' response. And the Lord said, if you had faith, the, uh, like a grain of mustard seed, little tiny seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now, those of you from an unhealthy health and wealth background, you know verse 6 ripped out of context, right? If I just had faith, I could say to whatever I want with my great faith, happen, and it'll happen. Meanwhile, what's the context? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. In fact, here's, here's Leon Morris, a, a biblical scholar. He says about the mulberry tree, this is fascinating. He says, it's uncertain what tree the sycamine was, that's, that's the Greek for the tree, but most think it was the black mulberry. The rabbis held that the roots of the tree with this name would remain in the earth for 600 years. Clearly, it was firmly rooted, so that removing it would be difficult. Jesus is not suggesting that his followers occupy themselves with pointless things like transferring trees into the sea. His concern is with the difficulty. He is saying that nothing is impossible to faith. Genuine faith can accomplish what experience, reason, and probability would deny if it is exercised within God's will. Now, you've heard this one too. Uh, if you had faith, you could save this mountain, be uprooted, and thrown into the sea. Right? And many of us imagine if we could just do some faith push-ups, we could be like some kind of Marvel superhero or Groku, if you like Baby Yoda for some of you, and just use the force of faith and take the Alleghenies and just throw them into the sea right? with the force of faith. And it would just splash and create a tidal wave and drown the whole East Coast. It'd be awesome, right? That's what Jesus is saying, right? If you just had enough faith, you could you know, uproot a mulberry tree and be thought of as some kind of superhero. Clearly, that's not what he's talking about. He's using an illustration. How do you move a mountain? You don't. How do you uproot a 600-year-old tree deeply rooted in the earth? You don't. That's the point. How do you forgive somebody that sins against you seven times in a day? You don't. Or do you? That's, that's what's being said here. You can do it. How? By faith. In other words, you can't. 
Friends, Christianity is a supernatural religion. Without God, John 15, we can do nothing. And so this is an impossible thing that Jesus is asking us to do. However, nothing is impossible with God, is it? And so we look away from ourselves. It's not about you and your faith. No, it's about, so faith has an object, right? Faith does not curve in on itself. Faith is not like a boomerang that shoots back and then it, it, and it charges up within you. No, faith always looks outside of itself and it lands on an object. What's the object? God himself. And so by you taking your faith and landing it in God, he then responds and gives you the power to do what you otherwise could not do. It's not about you and your faith. It's about God and his power. It's about God enabling you. It's about God empowering you to do what you otherwise could not do. And so let's continue to talk about that. A parallel passage um, is Matthew 18. And so we're going to go there. It's a little different, but it's parallel. But first, let's finish Luke 17, okay? So the very next verse, often we, we chop these up, but remember, increase our faith. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to the small berry tree, be uprooted, and it would, okay? Then he tells a story. Interestingly, he tells this parable story as a response to their saying, increase our faith, okay? Keep the context in mind. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Okay, meaning, come, sit down and eat. I'll, I'll fix you dinner. Now, the servant here, it's important to understand uh, the context here in the first century. Okay? Many of you have credit cards. Many of you have a mortgage. Many of you have a car note. Many of you have debt. Okay? And the banks lend us money at tremendously high interest rates, sadly. And then we take 30 years or so to pay back, you know, your car and your house and your whatever, your vacation that you put on a credit card, okay? Back in the day here, there were no banks that would lend at this kind of interest. And so if you fell into debt that you could not pay, you know what happened to you? You became a servant to the lender, which is why the proverb says what? The borrower is slave to the lender. Makes sense, right? We, Dave Ramsey loves that verse, but he rips it out of context. <laughs> the borrower, yes, is slave to the lender because if you can't pay it back, now you're their slave until you pay it back. And you know what the other option is? If you couldn't pay it back, they would throw you in debtor's prison. And you would either work it off there or you would rot for the rest of your life. That was how it worked. And so, get, get the context here. Jesus assumes this, but for us, this doesn't work like this, so we have to understand the context. Will any of you who has a servant, probably this servant owes this master a great debt, plowing or keeping sheep and say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? Hey, you owe me. That better be good steak. Better mash them potatoes just the way I like them. <laughs> Don't forget how much you owe me. And if I tip you, it'll knock a, you know, five more dollars off. And so prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now remember, in the context, it just makes sense. I mean, you owe the guy. You need to serve him and pay off your debt. 
Now look at verse 10. So also you. Now he's flipping it on the disciples who just said, increase our faith. This is impossible. So also you. When you have done all that you were commanded, what were they just commanded? Seven times in a day, forgive. Say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Mm. That's the correct response. Mm. <laughs> and so here's what's happening, okay? Let, let's, let's explain it. Friends, here's what we often don't think about. We live in a very secular culture that makes us imagine that we are self-existent and that we are responsible for our life, our movement, and our being, the food in our fridge, the oxygen we breathe, the air conditioning blowing around, we did it all. All to me I owe, right? We could sing hymns to ourselves. But the deal is, in God we live and move and have our being. And so it's right for us to sing, it's your breath in our lungs, so we offer up praise, right? The very breath in our lungs is God's, and yet we don't often think about this. So how much do we owe God? Everything, friends. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all the people in it. God says in the Psalms, if I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. All the Ruth Chris steakhouses, mine, baby. You like those Capitol Grill aged T-bones? They're all mine. Yeah, you can have one. You can have two. Go out for your anniversary. I'll share my cows with you. But see, we're like, I work for that money. That's my steak. And God's like, no, you got it backwards, buddy. I gave you the energy to work, and I provided the culture that can even get this steak to you with this nice wine and that hot bread. Go to the middle of a war zone and try to get a filet mignon, right? And so we, we often don't think about these things, but more is being said than that. If you're a Christian, God gave his very life for you. And now what do you owe him? Everything. And so here's Jesus' logic. Not only did I give you everything for existence, but I gave you my very self. I held back nothing from you, and you must obey me. It's not an option. And so say to yourself, I can do this because I was commanded to do this. That's what he's saying. And you're like, Jesus, have some compassion. <laughs> don't you know how much they hurt me? And he's like, don't you know how much you hurt me? Now listen, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the wrongs that people have done. And I'm going to get much more pastoral and counsel at the end. But I just want some of these texts to land on you with the force that it landed on the disciples. Why did they say, increase our faith? For the same reason that we think, this is crazy. Why is he talking like this? But do you see the logic of God? You owe me everything. Do you know what sin is? Okay. Sin in God's world is an offense 
against not only the moral law of God, which is the rights and the wrongs, but it's against him as a person. And when you sin, friends, the Bible says you owe God a debt. You're in debt to him. And you know what happens on the cross? Jesus absorbed your debt. And now he does not hold you in any sin debt. He doesn't say, I paid 99% of your debt. You only owe 1%. If that was the case, we'd be like, yeah. Meanwhile, he says, no debt left. No sin debt left for anyone in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And then how dare we hold someone else in our debt when God says, I hold you in no debt. Okay, and that, that's where Matthew 18 goes, and so it's set up for us. Jesus tells a story about forgiveness. It's almost a parallel passage, okay? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Notice the context. Accounts, money, possessions, debt. The king owns everything, and he wants to settle accounts with his servants who have his money. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. The note in the ESV is super helpful. A talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wage for a laborer. One talent. 20 years labor for one talent. He owed him 10,000 talents. Think about that debt. That's an incredible, unthinkable number. That's, that's U.S. government debt, baby. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> it's not that much. <laughs> and since he could not pay, since he could not pay, he's like, obvious he couldn't pay that. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. You see how this works in this culture? Oh, you can't pay? You're sold. That whole family over there, they're sold. You owe me everything. I need my money. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Logically, impossible. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's amazing. 10,000 talents forgiven. A talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a labor. 10,000 times 20 years. That's, un that's unbelievable. But when that same servant went out, he, he goes out debt-free. He's like, yeah. You know, he's strutting, looking like Denzel Washington, looking... But when that same servant went out, he found one of his, you know that Denzel Washington strut, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like that little. <laughs> he found one of his fellow servants who owed him, look, a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. He owed him a hundred days work. Now that's a lot. Like a third of your salary. That's a lot of money, right? Let's not, let's not play, that's, that's a lot. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Right? Think WWF. You grab the throat. Pay me what you owe. Right? And he's looking him in the face. His eyes are popping out. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have pay. Now look at this. 
have patience with me and I will pay you. That's a quote from somewhere, right? That should have rang in this guy's ear. Because didn't he just say it to the king? Have patience with me and I'll pay you everything I owe. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And, and, and you should be like, I can't believe this. Right? This is why Jesus is telling the story. You should be like, I can't believe this. When his fellow servants saw, notice fellow servants, when they saw that he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Unpayable. That's a picture of hell. You're going to pay in jail this unpayable debt. You're going to pay forever. So also, look at this, ouch, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now again, Jesus, we love the pictures of Jesus with the lamb, right? And he's cuddly and he's soft and it's like, oh, look at him holding that fluffy lamb. We don't like this Jesus. Just be honest, you don't like this guy. But you got to take the whole Jesus or you don't have Jesus. You remember Talladega Nights, baby Jesus in the golden fleece diaper? Like that Jesus is not too intimidating, is he? This Jesus, a little more intimidating. And let 35 land on you like it would have landed on the hearers. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, what will happen? my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. What will he do? In his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. All right, now, we could start getting into some specifics here, okay? Notice this in this text. The king is the one representing God, And the king has given to the servant much, and he calls account. And the servant can't pay it, okay? You should put yourself in that servant's shoes. God has given you life and breath and everything else. And if you're a Christian in here, he has given you unlimited grace, mercy, forgiveness. No condemnation is written over you. That's unbelievable. He, he forgave a debt you could not pay him. To forgive literally means to absorb a debt. That's what it means. So, for example, okay, I, I do like to do some yard work, and so if you're uh, a Milwaukee type of guy, you can buy one of those nice battery-powered Milwaukee chainsaws, and these things are, are rated off the charts. You're like a battery-powered chainsaw. These things are beast mode, okay? And let's say that I had one of these, like, $1,000 chainsaws, and you say, hey, can I borrow that chainsaw? And I'm like, all right, you can borrow it. It's brand new. But then you use it. You're like, this is fantastic. You shoot me a text. This thing's cutting through like, like butter. It's amazing. And you leave it out in the rain for a week. 
And I text you, you know, because my tree fell over two weeks later. I'm like, hey, you got that chainsaw? And you're like, ooh. So you give it back, and I go to use it, and it's like, <laughs> I'm like, yo, what, what happened to the chainsaw? You're like, ah, oh, I left it out in the rain. I don't think it's working. Now I have a choice. You, you better buy me a new chainsaw, bro. <laughs> and, and who absorbs the wrong? the offender. Or I could say, don't worry about it. I'll get a new chainsaw. Who absorbs the wrong? I do. Listen, someone's got to pay. In forgiveness, someone always pays. In the case of God and our sin, who pays? Jesus. This is why we sing songs. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We owed God an infinite debt, and he said, I'll cover it. And he did with his blood. God did not withhold his only son, whom he loved for us. And then he says to you and I, as his forgiven children, Go and do likewise. As people owe you relationally, and because they will wrong you, you must practice the same thing that you receive from me. Now listen, it's hard. Okay? Jesus is not talking about how difficult this is. He's just saying you got to do it. And so we can wrestle with, this is hard, and I want to do it, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah, and this is where good sermons, good books, and good biblical counseling comes in. Okay? And here is one help. You ready? Forgiveness is a process, not an event. Okay? What do I mean by that? You could choose at any time to be like, I forgive you. And that debt's still sitting right there. And you look at it and you're like, mm, I should pick that back up. And you are tempted to pick the debt back up. You're like, I forgive you. But at any moment, especially if they wrong you again, you're tempted to be like, ooh, you owe me double now. You know? And, and so it's a process. But what's happening in that process? Friends, you're absorbing the pain. You're absorbing the wrong. You're absorbing the injustice. You're soaking it into yourself. What does that remind you of? Jesus on the cross. It's exactly what he did for us. Jesus took the wrath of God and soaked it up like a sponge so there's nothing left for you and there's no debt in your account between you and God. And he wants us to do the same. And so we have to, we must walk through the process. What's the process look like? It's long and arduous. One, you have to choose. I'm going to do this. I'm going to forgive. Okay? And then it's a process of you absorbing the debt rather than making them absorb it. How do you make them absorb it? Well, maybe you want to get vengeance. Maybe you want to slander them and, and write nasty things on Facebook. Or every time you talk with someone, you want to uh, take them down and make everyone know they're a villain. Right? And you make them pay in all kinds of ways. And you can't do that. You absorb it. You refuse to 
bring it up eventually even to yourself. I'm not going to bring it up to you, but eventually I'm not even going to bring it up to me. How do you do that? Well, you do have to bring it up to God often. And he listens every time. Friends, did you know, read the Psalms. A lot of Psalms, the language of forgiveness and hurt and pain and enemies is all through there. And you can find the language of wrestling with forgiveness in there. A friend hurts me. Oh God, you know, this hurts. Give me the faith. Help me to trust in you to be able to extend the forgiveness that I have received from you. And notice in the text, there's actually a help kind of hidden right here in the text. Remember, it's the king and the servant, but watch this. But when that same servant, verse 28, went out and found one of the fellow servants. What does this mean? You were on the same horizontal plane with everybody else. It's really helpful for you to think in those terms. Because here's what we do. They've wronged me, therefore I'm up here, I'm in the right, and they're down there. But no, you're both fellow servants. You're the same. You have a common humanity, and if they're Christians, Jesus has paid for your sin just as much as them. You're in debt to God as much as they're in debt to God. Now listen, I'm not saying they didn't genuinely wrong you. They did, and they need to pay. Or someone else needs to pay for them. See what I'm saying? Someone pays. Jesus pays, and when you forgive, you pay. See, that's why in the earlier Matthew 5, when you're uh, worshiping at the altar and someone has something against you, remember that? You're the problem. You're in debt to the other person. What is, what is the, the counsel? You go make that right. You go make that right with them. They have a problem with you. You're the problem. So again, this is helpful. Okay? Uh, Tim Keller has a fantastic message that we used in our GCCs a long time ago. It's called the Generosity Series. Anyone remember that? It was on money and relationships, and some of you were here for that. Uh, in the Generosity and Relationship uh, Series, he, he has this basically... Uh, And he says this, we must not exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. Fellow servant, you must remember that, yeah, they are a sinner and they've sinned against you, but who are you? You are also a sinner who has sinned against God. And friends, when we're wrong, here's what we do. We feel righteous, self-righteous, and there is a genuine sense of injustice. Why? Because injustice has been done. But then the next step is, I'm up here, and they're down there. And I deserve to squash them like a bug. Meanwhile, in God's eyes, you're the same. You're a servant. You're a sinner. You owe God as much as they owe God. And it's helpful for you to remember that. Because self Ed Welsh said this. He said, anger always thinks itself right. And the more angry you are, the more right you feel. And so if they offended you and you are really mad, you feel like Batman out for justice. 
What's your name? I am vengeance. <laughs> and you're going to get some. And you feel righteous and right because they're the sinner and you're the one that has kind of a little glow of holiness about you. At least in your, in your own mind, you look in the mirror and you kind of shine with some holiness. Right? I'm holy, they're basically a demon. That's what you do. That's what we do. Meanwhile, it's really helpful for you to say, no, I'm a sinner just like them. You've heard this before. It's really helpful to remind yourself. Every single sin that exists is in seed form in your heart and in my heart. And it just needs the right soil and the right sunlight and the right circumstance to grow, and it'll grow. Why did Jesus say, if you've hated someone in your heart, what have you done to them? You've murdered them. That's a bit extreme, Jesus. Friends, anger, unchecked, and then allowed to ferment, turns into bitterness, turns into a grudge, turns into, I'm going to get them. Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says, look, you better deal with your anger. Paul knows what he's talking about when he says, in your anger, deal with it before the sun goes down. Why? Or the devil is going to get a foothold. You remember that, right? In Ephesians, there's very few places in the Bible where the devil is said to directly work. Unchecked anger is one of those places. And friends, what happens when someone sins against you? Whew. Blood pressure, stress, cortisol. I mean, you're just like, mm. or you feel like you could take a mountain, forget the faith. You feel like you just rip the mountain up and toss it into the sea yourself, right? You feel like the Hulk. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, yo, be careful. Paul's saying, be careful. In your anger, do not sin. In fact, don't even let the sun go down on your anger. That's a bit of hyperbole, okay? I, I don't think he means that literally. But what he's saying is, you better deal with that as fast as possible because if you don't, the devil's coming. And don't think because you're a Christian, you are not susceptible to the devil. Because you're told in other texts, be on your guard. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. He's looking for you. He's looking for ways to get you. And anger is one he's been using since Genesis 4. You remember Cain and Abel? He's angry at his brother because he's, his sacrifice was not accepted. And so what does he do? I'm going to kill my brother. You remember Jacob and Esau? Esau, I'm going to kill my brother. Right? And, and this is the repeated story of the Bible over and over and over. And what Jesus does is he comes and he says, no more. You will forgive. You will forgive the worst of sins that are committed against you. Why? Because I've forgiven you the worst of your sins. That's why. Let's continue. Again, I'm, I'm going to get more pastoral as we go, so don't leave. Okay, please don't leave. I like Ed Welsh a lot. Ed Welch is a biblical counselor out of Philadelphia, uh, Christian Counseling Education Foundation, CCEF. He says this. Though Scripture does not speak of God's wrath, I'm sorry, though Scripture does speak of God's wrath against us, anger, it is not the main emphasis. 
Now, depending on what pastor is your favorite pastor, you would think it is the main emphasis. Right? I'm tempted to name names right now, but I'll just let it go. Scripture's emphasis is that the triune God is inclined by his very nature to forgive. That is his resting state. I love that. We, we often have this view of God that, like, he's just waiting to smash us. And he has every right to do so, by the way. And, and because we also feel guilty, we're like, you should smash me, you know, if you're being honest. You should smash me. But that is not God's disposition, if you will. I love what Ed Welsh says here. His resting state is one of mercy and grace and compassion and forgiveness. What about you? Let's continue. His plan has always been to turn his wrath away from us and onto another. And he does this as an expression of his character rather than a response to our contrition. I love that. Let me read that again. He does this as an expression of his character, his forgiveness, rather than as a response to our contrition, like how sorry we feel and how much we repent and how much we grovel. And then Ed quotes Romans 5, 8 to 11 to back up what he's saying. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Ed continues, love comes to sinners. Wrath has been turned away because God, Father, Son, and Spirit, wants it in that way. Sin separates us from God no longer. He has attached himself to us. We cannot argue with the blood of Christ shed for us. I love that. What great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. Now, friends, here's a help. Here's a practical help. He who has been forgiven much will love much, and then Evan actually followed it up with where I was going. He said forgive much. Friends, your ability to forgive is in direct relation to how much you realize you're a sinner that has offended a holy God. If you think you're a pretty good person, and like that guy and that girl over there, they're sinners. I mean, they really need Jesus. I kind of need Jesus, but not that much. I mean, I'm not that bad. You know, maybe two or three sins, maybe five. All right, ten. But them. Friends, God looks at that kind of attitude, and he's like, you have no idea who you are. You have no self-understanding. And so when we realize how much of a sinner we are and how much God has forgiven us, in other words, how much of a debt we owe him, then we will be able to forgive the smaller debts that others owe us. 
And again, it's a process. It's not an event. So if you've been wrestling for years to forgive a person, that's right. Keep wrestling. Right? You, you pick the debt back up, and then you put it back down. You're like, no, 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 I don't want that. And then you remember again, and you pick it back up. I got to forgive again. And you work through this process, and sometimes it takes years, and it plagues you. But friends, don't give up. Keep working through the process. Remind yourself of how much God has forgiven you. And then remember what he said earlier. If you only had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could do this. Faith that trusts in God for the power to forgive. You can do this. Now, let's answer some of the questions specifically, and we're out of here. Is there a biblical difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? That's one of your questions. The answer is yes. There is a difference. In fact, if you were paying attention as we went through all these texts, you noticed one thing. There are some passages that seem to say, you must forgive no matter what. And if you don't, God won't forgive you. And so, level one forgiveness, we could say, is obligatory for all Christians. What does that look like? That looks like you saying, I am forgiven in God, and I must forgive this other person for what they've done. It's that Matthew 18, unforgivable debt, and then you holding in debt the servant who owes you much less. That is not optional for Christians. Now, back to Luke 17. If, if your brother repents, even seven times in a day, that's metaphoric, number seven, if they repent, then forgive him. You're like, wait a minute. I thought we had to forgive all the time. You do. Second level forgiveness is that reconciliation piece. And so here's where we get into abusers, those who refuse to acknowledge their wrong, those who continue to say, I'm sorry, but not repent, and they keep wronging, and they keep wronging, and they keep wronging. Jesus is like, no, you don't, you don't take that. You don't let someone continue to sin against you unrepentantly. Why? You are not loving them. Remember, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? Rebuke them. If they repent, then you forgive them. What does that mean? Restore the relationship. Friends, Jesus does not expect us to live in habitual, unrepentant abuse. He's like, cut them off. And sometimes we've counseled as pastors people to do that. And you're like, I don't know. Where's that in the Bible? It's in the Bible a lot. (laughs) Here's one. Here's one example. Titus 3, 9 to 11. Remember, this is Paul writing to his son in the faith, Titus. Avoid foolish controversies. He's talking about controversial people, okay? Avoid foolish controversies. Genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. the, The first century quarrels, people who just love to debate. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Like, just don't engage, Titus, and then watch this. As for a person who stirs up division, hmm, a divisive person. After warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him. Well, that's not forgiveness. Apparently, it's level two forgiveness. 
Now, if they repent of all that's in verse 9, we bring them back. But if they're continuing to quarrel, continuing to be controversial, continuing to argue about second or third level things like genealogies and and calendar days and dietary laws and whatnot, and we've warned you, now we've warned you again, you're done. We're cutting you off. That's what he says to do. And he's talking to a pastor. Cut them off. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, self-condemned. Now listen, is there hope for this person? Yeah. They need rebuked, and what needs to happen? They need to repent. Now, if you're on the receiving end of the divisions and the controversies and all the quarrels, what do you got to do? You forgive. But that doesn't mean you got to sit in that continually. No, you rebuke them once. Remember, if your brother sins against you, Luke 17, rebuke them. If they repent, receive them back. Okay? There are marriages who are continuously either physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive. What would Jesus say to that? You confront that. And if they don't repent, you cut them off. He doesn't say divorce. And th- this is probably a biblical counseling session. So if some of you are like, hmm, come talk to me. Then come talk to me. We need to talk. Don't, don't go home tonight and be like, Pastor Chris, I heard that sermon, man. I, I'm in the market for a new spouse. No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, I'm not saying that. Come talk to me first. Okay? But God does not want you. Listen, friends, it is, it is in no way loving or Christian to allow people to continually sin against you. That's not Christian. Would Jesus rebuke us in our sin? Yes. What was the first thing Jesus came preaching? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would he still say that to you if you were in sin habitually? Absolutely. He wouldn't be like, it's all right. Keep shooting heroin. I mean, you love it. No, he'd be like, stop. You're killing yourself and everyone around you. Repent. That's what he would say. If you're physically or emotionally or sexually abusing people, you think he's going to be like, it's all right. You're forgiven. Keep doing it. I'll keep forgiving you. No, he's, repent. Now. And then, friends, we can work through a process of actual real repentance. And I've seen it happen in relationship, after individual, after broken marriage, after, you know, family unit. Listen, if you're in a relationship, you have to forgive, don't you? Right? We who are in hard families or hard neighborhoods or hard church relationships, we totally experientially understand what Peter says when he says, love covers a multitude of sin. Right? And some of us look at our spouse and we just see the multitude. <laughs> but Jesus wants you to cover that multitude of sin with what? Love. How do you do that? Friends, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called His children. All right, here's one more. Okay, this one's pretty clear. Paul uh, wrote a letter that we don't have, which inspired this 1 Corinthians. So actually, this is 2 Corinthians. Don't get confused, though. I wrote you in my letter, what letter? The one before this one. Not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Otherwise, right, I love this, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, listen, if you're living in the world, you're going to have to interact with sinners. And so I'm not talking about people who aren't Christians. I'm talking about people who are in Christ and in the church. Members, actually. Now, that, man, that verse 10 has some implications for our day, doesn't it? And, and this is not a sermon about Pride Month or LGBTQ+, or any other sexual sinners out there. I'll let that sit there. But now... I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Wait a minute. Cut him off? Not to associate. Cut him off. With anyone who bears the name brother. If, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You don't even fellowship with them. Like, really, not even have a meal? I mean, that Paul, that's not Christian. He's, he's writing to a church, instructing them what to do with, listen, habitual, unrepentant, sexually immoral people, greedy people, idolatrous people, reviling people, drunk people, and swindlers who bear the name brother and who do not repent of that kind of lifestyle. He's like, no, you cut them off. You don't give them the impression that it's okay. You don't give them the impression that you get to live like this and call yourself a Christian. That's what he's saying. So you talk about cutting people off. You're like, that's harsh. That's unfair. That's unloving. No, this is biblical Christianity. Now listen, do we fall into idolatry regularly as Christians? Yes. Do some of us have too many drinks? Yes. Do some of us sexually sin? Yes. Here's the difference. We repent. We ask for forgiveness. And then we get back up and dust ourselves off and we continue to move forward. Jesus is not talking here about sinless perfection. He is talking about a continual repentant life. That's the only option we have. You get it? And so greed is one of those things that we got to be careful of. Living a self-centered, it's all about me, everything I have is mine, I'm not sharing with you. Like, don't associate with them. Like, really? Yes. And so again, unrepentantly, cut them off. This is what Paul's saying. Now wait, now watch this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Talk about cutting people off. Purge the person from among you. Okay, now, remember the context, okay? Ready? Remember the context. Earlier in this chapter, there was a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Right? There was such a sexual perversion that a guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the church was okay with it. And he's like, yo, there's not even such sexual immorality in the culture that would accept this, but you're arrogant? He's saying, like, you're not only accepting this, but you're proud that you're accepting this? And he says, cut, cut this person off. Remove them from the church. 
This is church discipline. And now I have to make a call for church membership here. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Fran. Friends, how do you remove someone from a church if they're not in it? And again, church membership is implied all through the New Testament, though it's never explicitly commanded. But the simple question is, how do you remove someone from a local body if they're not technically a part of it? And this is why some people don't want to be members, actually. I'm not talking to you, girl. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not thinking of anyone's face in here. Okay, not you, Lisa. I promise. I promise. God is my witness. I am not thinking of you. I love you. And you're going to come to the membership class the next time we do it, right? Yeah, that's right. Good. Excellent. Love it. No one in here am I talking to. I swear. Okay, I'm talking about everyone in all the other churches. All them. <laughs> okay. And we are, we, we are running out of time fast. All right, so I got I to gotta, I gotta leave that one sit. I got to leave that one sit. My, my only point in bringing these two texts, I could have brought more, okay? But this is not a sermon about church discipline. This is not a sermon about cutting people off when it's appropriate. I just want to show you there's two incidents. This is clear. There are times where you are to say to someone, no more, you're out. Okay. Number two. Again, I got three, three, that's it. A three that's left and we're out of here. Okay. Not three slides. Yes. But three points, three questions. Here we go. How can or do you walk in forgiveness towards a professing believer who, haven't, who hasn't asked for forgiveness or demonstrated repentance? Well, we kind of already an answered this, haven't we? You must forgive them from the heart as you've been forgiven, but if they don't repent and they don't even ask for forgiveness, you don't act like everything's okay and just move on. Luke 17, if they sin against you, what do you do? Rebuke them. If they repent, then you reconcile with them. And so the rebuking, now here's my encouragement, the rebuking must be done with a right heart because sometimes the rebuking could be, I'm gonna make you pay for what you did, right? And that's not Christian. The rebuke is in order to restore. And so it has to have the right heart. In fact, you would have to do the first level forgiveness probably in order to be able to go to them and rebuke them with a right heart, right? Okay. So, how do you walk in forgiveness? You forgive that person as God has forgiven you. And here's why, friends. Now, I didn't have a chance to unpack this. But you remember how Luke 17, 3 starts out. Watch out for yourself. Do you know what unforgiveness does to the soul? It turns it rotten. You become bitter and angry and disgruntled and frustrated and mad at the world. And Jesus is like, I want you to have joy. Galatians 5, 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He, doesn't walk, he, want, he does not want Christians walking in unforgiveness, wearing that huge backpack of cinder blocks. He's like, drop that thing. Don't walk around holding other people in debt. No, release that. That's going to be good for you. You who have unforgiven, listen, okay, just experientially, you who have people who you have not forgiven, think of them right now and see what happens to you internally. But God doesn't want that for you. 
He wants you to think of them and be neutral or desire reconciliation. That's what he wants. He wants you to desire for them, if they haven't repented, to repent and be reconciled. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you all twisted up by anger and resentment and vengeance. He wants you to forgive. But you know, how do you do it? Christ forgave me. Rebuke them. If they repent, then we can reconcile. If they don't, you can't. Number three, how do you forgive someone who has died? Now, this is a very good question. Here's what I wrote. By working out the forgiveness that God has granted you on the horizontal level, and you remember we talked about that earlier, they're a sinner, you're a sinner. So you work that out. But also, a few practical things would be to write prayers to God about the sins they've committed against you and ask God to remove whatever is lodged in you because of that debt. God, would you please remove this anger I feel towards them? Would you please remove this bitterness I have towards them? Would you please take away the video that keeps playing in my mind of the sin over and over? Would you please stop that? Get it out of my mind. And friends, here's a little little hint. Another way to uh, walk in the process of forgiveness, try to stop playing the YouTube video of the offense over again. Don't intentionally hit play again. You should be like, no, I'm not going to think about that. Then, here's, here's another thing you can do, I think. I think you could write a letter to that person explaining to them, like physically with a pen and paper, explaining to them what they did to you and how because God has forgiven you, you are forgiving them. And just write that out. And then I would either keep the letter or burn the letter or throw the letter in the Allegheny River or something like that as a symbol of, I am leaving this with God. Okay, so, so remember, number one, if this is you, I would write prayers to God processing what has been done. Number two, I would write a letter to the person, even though they'll never receive it, writing what they did to you and how you are forgiving them based on what Jesus has done for you. And then as a symbol of that forgiveness you are giving them, you burn that letter or you drown that letter or you bury that letter. And, and, and we could talk more personally. Come see me if that's you. Number four, last one. If and when I forgive, do I have to forget? Okay, this is often, it's quoted like it's scripture. Forgive and forget. It's actually not a Bible verse, believe it or not. It's not in the Bible. Here's the truth. There are, there are some wrongs that have been done to us that you'll never forget it. But you know what you can do? You can choose, like I said a minute ago, to stop replaying the offense. You, you can be intentional about, I'm going to refuse to think about that anymore. Okay? And if you've never talked it out with someone, you do need to get that out of you in a counseling way. Like you need to see either a professional counselor or a pastoral counselor and you need to process through whatever sins have been committed against you. Because if you've never brought it out to anyone, you've never allowed it to come out of you, it's living inside of you, and it does need to come out. Now, it doesn't need to come out in gossip and trying to make the person pay for what they did, but it does need to come out of you in a biblical way. 
And so as you process with a counselor or write in a journal, some of you have written in journals and, and you detail the offense, um, then pray to God for help to stop rehearsing the wrong. Like, it, some of you could tell me what the wrong is in such clear detail, it's as if it happened yesterday. Meanwhile, it was 25 years ago. The only way that's possible is if you've rehearsed that over, just like a song, your favorite song. As soon as the melody starts playing, you're like, you know, and you could start quoting those words. If you can quote back an offense, detail by detail by detail, friends, you've been playing that for a long time. And it's time to work through a process of stop playing it. Okay? So can you forget? You can. But it is a process. It's not, you can't just choose, oh yeah, I'm never going to think about that again. Because you'll have reminders, you'll have triggers. If someone else does something similar to you, it'll bring it back up, but then you need to work through the process again. Okay, and, and I wish I had more time, but I've already taken an hour plus of your time. I hope it didn't feel like that, but it's definitely been over an hour. And so I'm going to stop here, and I'm looking forward to the next 11 messages in this series, but this is kind of a, a preview of what it's going to be. Um, I know that I've not gone far enough for some of you. And so if you want to talk more about this, please, please come talk to me. Uh, this is a very important uh, theological topic and a reality that all of us must be practicing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Jesus right now by singing a gospel song, and we're going to take communion together, uh, rem being reminded together of the body broken and the bloodshed of Jesus for us that we might receive the forgiveness of God based on Jesus in our place. So if you're a Christian tonight, we would invite you, take communion with us. Even if you're not a member, if you're here and you would say, I am a Christian, I am depending on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, we would encourage you, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes with us by taking this. If you're not a Christian, but you would like to become one tonight perhaps, Take this as an act of faith, saying, I want to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. I want to, in faith, trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. Take this as a symbol of your faith in him. And let's worship together by singing. And then after we're done singing, I'll come out and I'll lead us all in taking communion together. So if you could all please stand.